Welcome to the Energy Intelligence Podcast. My name is Luke Johnson. I am a deputy editor at Energy Intelligence and the host of this podcast series, which is focused on competitive intelligence in the energy sector. With me today is Casey Merriman, the head of our competitive intelligence service. Hey, Casey. Hey, Luke. Last week, we held our Energy Intelligence Forum, our annual conference, a four-day marathon that featured the insights of some of the biggest names in energy, from CEOs to investors and even a few critics of the energy sector. All of the sessions are still available on demand on our website, energyintel.com, plus reams of news and analysis that came out of the event, so be sure to go check that out if you haven't already. We're also releasing some of those leadership dialogues here on this podcast feed, if you prefer to tune in that way. We already posted a a discussion with Shell CEO Ben Van Burden that is definitely worth listening to, and there should be a few more dropping over the next several days as well, so keep an eye out for that. But today, we're going to continue the discussion around some of the themes that came out of the Energy Intelligence Forum last week. The energy transition was obviously a hot topic, really the dominant topic. So Casey, let's let's start out with this question that is kind of the big one when it comes to corporate sure. strategy in the short term and the long term. Um, and that's, you know, what, what role the majors are going to play in the energy transition. The, the big five, Exxon, Chevron, Shell, BP, and Total are all in kind of different places on this, but they're all clearly trending in the same general direction in terms of the push to decarbonize with a growing emphasis on cleaner forms of energy. But broadly speaking, what what role do we expect the majors to play in the energy transition? And, and how important are these companies going to be actually in achieving these incredibly ambitious and, and vitally important climate goals? Yeah, so I think what we're really seeing emerge is the majors being a vehicle of the transition, right? So um, as you say, they're kind of taking different forms and how they interpret that or would like to execute that. But they are essentially all trying to position themselves to go from being, you know, 10% of the world's oil and gas uh, supply uh, in terms of uh, production and in veering from that. Um, in the case of the U.S. majors, it's it's toward, you know, things like uh, hydrogen and biofuels and using carbon capture and storage uh, to help decarbonize the oil and gas that will still be consumed. Um, in terms of the European majors, they're much more focused around renewable renewable electricity, um, although they also have those other elements in their plans as well. But what they're kind of really laying out is this transition is going to happen incrementally, even if it is accelerating. And so we can provide you know, lower carbon oil and gas for now while it's needed and have a path to provide the you know, additional new energies of the future. The key question in all of this um, is whether the paths that they lay out will be acceptable to investors in terms of the time horizon with which they, they would like to execute, right? So, you know, when you talked about, um, you know, their um, ambitious climate goals, those are long dated goals. The world's climate goals are long dated, but you know how do you get from point A to point B? And they're really having to sit down and think about it quite incrementally. And if kind of given that space, they actually have a very, very vital role to play, um, you know, in the oil and gas space in the medium term for the demand that's still there. 
So where where does that leave investors at at this point? I mean, obviously we're kind of in the midst of a really un maybe unexpected, but certainly a, a price spike that hasn't been seen in a long time, both in oil and gas. So has that has the, the current price spike, uh, you know, led some of these investors to maybe soften their mm-hmm. stances on on their demands for our energy transition? And I mean, it, you know, more broadly, is there still room for traditional fossil fuel businesses? in investor portfolios long-term? Yeah. So it's a really important question that's potentially becoming a little bit more nuanced on the answer. So what we have seen is there are absolutely, you know, more progressive, uh, you know, funds, uh, more progressive institutional investors that want this to be supply-led. You know, you are a producer, you need to wind down immediately, uh, independent of what demand does. They, they want to try to kind of go after everything to wind down as quickly as possible. But what we, we, we definitely heard last week and are starting to get indications of elsewhere is that, you know, given the current price uh, spike that we are seeing, if, if the kind of climate movement is supply led and it moves faster than demand is destroyed, right? It can create real pain, very, very real pain for economies and very, very real pain for consumers and especially lower income consumers. So there is Mm -hmm. some, you know, kind of emerging talk of, well, hold on just a second. You know, um, if we tell this group of companies to get out of oil and gas, um, you know, one, is that really going to solve the problem? Because if they sell assets and simply someone else is going to produce them, and if, even if they hold onto them and wind them down, if the demand is that still there, someone else is going to produce them. And in both of those cases, the producers likely less transparent, you know, can't be held uh, accountable necessarily, um, you know, by these same investors. Um, it just kind of pushes things into kind of a more op- opaque part of the market rather than get kind of the emissions results that are desired. And and so, you know, it, there absolutely uh, is a, a demand from investors that if we give you kind of the buy-in to still be large oil and gas producers for maybe even the longer term, right? Investment is still okay. You must mitigate your emissions like today, right? We want to see, we want to see your emissions start to fall. Um, and, and if, if that can be demonstrated, then there are perhaps more investors out there that would be willing to still fund and hold fossil fuel companies, then perhaps we would have thought about, say, you know, a year and a half ago when there was all this talk about, oh, you know, peak demand is already here, COVID has brought it along, you know, that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. it is those kind of waves are starting to emerge, but it's absolutely dependent on successful execution on the the low carbon front too. So I guess it's almost like the this this price spike has has given some of the traditional oil companies a bit more maybe maybe some more breathing room to mm-hmm. to achieve these goals in in the eyes of the investors. Yeah, I think that's a really fair way to put it. But it's like, you know, it is only breathing room, right? <laughs> and it, and it also probably kind of the last breathing room you get. So if you kind mm-hmm. of burn this goodwill, then you know, you're kind of you're done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
so I mean, I guess it, it, it does seem like the large operators are are getting this message, at, mm-hmm. at least that patience is limited, if, if not wearing thin. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they need, like you said, they need to show that they're doing something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just recently, we, we saw Chevron become the largest U.S. producer to, or yeah, the, the largest mm-hmm. U.S. major to, to make a, a net zero by 2050 pledge. Uh, pretty clearly in response to investor pressure and specifically the shareholder resolution that was passed in May. Um, mm-hmm. But as you've written, that particular pledge that they announced sounds maybe a bit more meaningful than it you know, may actually be in practice. I mean, will it be enough? Yeah, it's kind of a, a devil's in the details. So, I mean, there, there's a couple important things with Chevron and, and they're, I think they're probably the most important case study that we have out there on the U.S. side in terms of what uh, the the tolerance U.S. investors will have for a different path, you know, to the European model, right? Like, kind of how much leniency is in there? So, with with uh, Chevron's net zero pledge, first they only applied it to their upstream operations. Okay, so uh, I took a look, and and basically, it, about thirty eight percent of their current operational emissions would be excluded from that pledge, just not part mm-hmm. of it. So, so there there's kind of that element. The other key part was that uh, shareholder resolution you mentioned uh, demanded quote substantial reductions uh, in Chevron's emissions that include those from its products, right? These are so-called scope three emissions. And so Chevron responded to that by creating a, a new target for 2028 that isn't just upstream, it's its whole business, it includes the its products it sells, and it wants to reduce the intensity of its emissions by a little over 5% between 2016 and 2028. Okay, so this is like its first stab at, at responding to that demand. And while it's about 5%, you know, over that period, um, based on its 2020 emissions profile, it would only be a 0.6% improvement, like from here to 2028. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously last year, an exceptional year, it's very plausible that COVID dislocations distorted that number down, you know, and Chevron has a good amount of work to do once things kind of normalize and we get a sense of where its emissions are. But if that's not the case, that's not a whole lot of incremental improvement over quite a long period of time when investors want kind of concrete action, right? And the other kind of key component to that is Chevron isn't just planning on being an oil and gas producer predominantly, you know, this decade, it's playing on growing, right, through at least 2025. And so because that uh, target is based around intensity rather than its absolute emissions, we could actually see its absolute emissions grow. And that could be the sticking point for investors, right? So Mm -hmm. they may be comfortable with Chevron's low carbon investment plans and the pace of that, but they may not be okay with that oil and gas profile growing as well. So that that's really, you know, it just came out, as you said, but that's kind of really the key to watch is the potential pushback it gets around that. Yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what the mm-hmm. what the earnings call sounds like um, mm-hmm. in light of that. Um all right, let's let's talk about LNG for a minute and yeah. what these trends kind of mean for for LNG. I mean, it it is a foundational piece of even the most progressive energy transition strategies, uh, but it is still a fossil fuel with a mm-hmm. large carbon footprint. And of course, there are these concerted efforts to decarbonize the LNG sector through CCS or whatever. 
but that's going to be expensive and complicated with no real guarantee of success. What have we learned about the appetite for LNG development among operators and and within the investment community? Yeah, it's interesting that there seems to me to be a bit of a disconnect. I mean, you know, we didn't just hear from, you know, the majors and stuff uh, at last week's forum. We heard from a lot of representatives from national oil companies um, and, and other other important uh, buyers in growing nations in Asia. And overwhelmingly, um, all of them highlighted some pretty substantial uh plans for, you know, in kind of low carbon, renewable energy, and all of them said LNG will be critical to the transition, right? I mean, they, they emphasized, you know, even in the, even with what's going on currently with prices being astronomically high, they need LNG or they see it as essential to get out of coal to complement the growth in renewables. Otherwise, kind of their arc and the transition is going to take a lot longer. Um, and so, you know, because of that, they, the, the, the kind of the majors, uh, you know, desire to be and remain large players in LNG is, is not without warrant, right? In terms of, of, of trying to actually say that it is part of their, their lower carbon strategy. And, you know, and I think what, what we really heard was this is LNG is kind of a perfect example where you better be careful what you wish for if you specifically push the majors out too far too fast right you know not only are they among the largest players you know currently in terms of existing capacity but they are you know equity shareholders in an enormous amount of capacity that's coming on and an enormous amount of proposed capacity and while they're absolutely you know critical players like tar petroleum that have huge expansion plans uh, that may or may not have the majors on board with them um, you know, there is still more capacity that is needed, you know, realistically based on the current path that the world is on from a pace of transition, right? And so the other key component of that, though, that we also heard was gas must get cleaner, right? So methane emissions, methane emissions, <laughs> like over and over again, it was like banging the drum. It's like, stop talking about how you can, you know, reduce your methane emissions. Just please go do it. Otherwise, we're going to tell you to stop being part of this business, regardless of what the demand forecast is, right? And so mm-hmm. I know you mentioned CCS, you know, is definitely something that Total Energies and Shell have flagged for kind of next generation uh, LNG plants as a, as a way to help decarbonize. Um, another big um, kind of initiative is to run plants off of renewable power, right, to help with their footprint. And in some cases, you know, there's there's um, you know some appetite to maybe pair sales with uh, offset credits and stuff. Although um, you know you have to pay more for that at some point. <laughs> you know, it remains to be seen uh, how how uh, how much of a premium buyers are willing to take. So, you know, I think it's it's really just become imperative, again, for that buy-in. If you want to stay in LNG and you really think this has a key role, we might we might accept that, but green it up, right? And, and do it today. Like, please stop talking about what you might, might do, you know, yeah. five five years from now. 
Yeah, and uh, to your to your point, just a just a side note, you yeah. you mentioned uh, Qatar Petroleum, but they just announced this <laughs> yes. week that they have rebranded to Qatar Energy to underscore exactly this this uh, you know this topic. Um, You're exactly right. My apologies. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, even the the biggest LNG you know supplier in the world needs mm-hmm. to you know is is needs to reframe this uh, the way that they look at at this sector. Um, all right. Well, we need to wrap up here, but first, um, let's just let's just talk quickly about some of the shorter term implications for mm-hmm. all of this. Um, as I mentioned, inter- earnings season is upon us. Companies are starting to hammer out their budget plans for 2022, and you know it's coming at a time where we're really seeing this unique convergence of high commodity prices, uh, uncertain demand outlook, fears of supply shortages, and then this pervading pressure to to basically overhaul business models like. As soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like there's a lot riding on this particular budget season. Um, or, I mean, I guess uh, alternatively, are, is it a chance for companies just to kick the can down the road again? I mean, what do you think? Yeah. So, I mean, if we, if we widen it out, you know, kind of beyond the majors, I, the industry as a whole is going to spend more next year period. And they were going to do that before $80, uh, you know, oil and $30 gas appeared on the horizon this, this year, was going to be a trough and it, and it needed to be a trough, right? I mean, in it, because it reflected an industry still trying to claw out of an insane accelerated downturn last year, right? And so the, the, the current spending levels are not sustainable regardless of whatever oil and gas demand scenario you may have at, at your fingertips, right? So spending is going to go the, the, what's kind of really key to watch is there is how various ceilings will be put on how much that spending can go up, right? Mm-hmm. This is not going to be the response we would have seen five, ten years ago under similar conditions because of this transition pressure, right? So, you know, US CNPs, you know, they're not going to be able to commit all of their cash flows to reinvestment, never mind outspend like they used to, right? That's going to be capped. They have to pay investors and they themselves need to work on decarbonizing their operations. The majors, not only are they spending a lot less than they planned pre-COVID, regardless, an increasing percentage of that is going to new energies, right? Shell, for instance, is not reinvesting in its upstream business enough to offset natural declines, mm-hmm. right? That's a that's a new phenomenon uh, in the business. And so I think, you know, there will be such an intense view, um, I think more than almost any other time about how companies respond with their budgets. I think, frankly, there is willingness and acceptance of, of higher investment but it must be within the constraints of capital discipline. It must be, you know, it cannot be at the expense of low carbon investments. Um, you know, those those have to be front and center as well uh, in, in consideration. So uh, I very much don't see it as kicking the can down the road. The industry knows it needs to invest more, but it, it is definitely much more of a balancing act than we would have seen in the past. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, that's about all we have time for today. So thanks a lot, Casey. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Luke. Appreciate it. And thanks to everyone for listening. If you would like to read more of our news and views, go to our website, energyintel.com, and be sure to check out any of the Energy Intelligence Forum content that you may have missed while you're there. 
keep an eye on this feed for some interviews from that conference and more podcasts in the weeks to come. My name is Luke Johnson, and we'll see you next time.